Greetings, Trinity. We are about to embark on a very long quest and journey through the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read the first eight verses, and we're going to consider the opening chapter as a whole uh, this morning in our sermon. So let's hear from God's Word, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Let's pray. God, as we start this series in Exodus, I pray that you would bless it, that it would be good for us, that it would be good for our heads, our hearts, our lives that you would be with us right now as we come to your word, that while we get a sense of this overwhelming circumstance, that it would cause us to, to cry out for you to do a mighty work in our hearts. So do a great work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a kid, the Charlton Heston... Ten Commandments movie would always come on television on Easter weekend. And it was one of those things where it was always on the TV and I felt like it was the longest movie ever made. I usually fell asleep by the time they had the weird, creepy makeup making Charlton look a lot older than he was. As a kid, I thought the movie was cheesy and weird and from a different era, because I was growing up with Star Wars and aliens. Maybe you think of the Old Testament in a similar way. It's odd. It's from a, an entirely different era that you can't relate to. And maybe, maybe you get a little bored when you read it. I hope our series in Exodus busts that perception, and also causes our hearts to fill with wonder and worship at the God who delivers. I mean, that's my hope and aim as we consider this series, Exodus, Delivered to Dwell with God. What a great book, what a great theme, and what an incredible theme we see play out in the pages of Scripture. And so my hope, my aim, my heart, is that we would trust in the God who delivers. And while we may take 37 weeks or so to wrestle that theme down, that's still going to be the underwriting theme, that we would trust in the God who delivers. Exodus is an incredible story. It's a story that is filled with all kinds of incredible moments, some heart-wrenching heartaches, and some 
overwhelming moments of great joy and wonder. It's a remarkable story. And as we consider that story here at the beginning of it, there are three things that I want us to to think about in big picture form of this story. It is a story continued. Exodus doesn't just begin out of nowhere. It's a story continuing on from Genesis. That's important for us. It's a story of bondage, of great suffering and sorrow. It's filled with horrible moments. The people of God are incredibly and overwhelmingly oppressed. And it is a story of deliverance. And that story, this remarkable story of Exodus, pushes us and paints us to look forward to a more, even more incredible story of deliverance. So let's walk through that together this morning. A remarkable story is a storied continued. We are picking up from Genesis. That's important. Genesis ends in Egypt. Consider Genesis 50 verse 26, the very last words of that Bible. You probably all you have to do is just look back one page. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Last two words of, G- of Genesis, in Egypt. And where do we pick up in Exodus? We pick up in Egypt. And what do we find the people of God doing in Egypt? Well, note verse 7 of the opening chapter of Exodus. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. The people of God are doing something that sounds awfully familiar to you. If you know Genesis at all, you know in Genesis 1.28 and in Genesis 9.1, there was the cultural mandate that God gave to mankind to be fruitful and to multiply. Consider Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We find the people of God doing what the people of God should be doing. They are living out their lives that God called them to do. And they were enjoying the blessing of what it means to live out the way that God wants you to live. But it goes disastrously awry for them. Living how God wants you to live will not gain approval from the world. In fact, it will be rejected and opposed. And we need to know that there is a reason for that. There is a reason why God's ways God's words, God's works are rejected. There's a story behind the story. That's why Exodus is a storied 
that is continued. It is building off of very crucial things that happened before it. One of the most crucial things you find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When sin was introduced into God's world through God's people, God dealt with the involved parties. He spoke to Adam, and he spoke to Eve, and he also spoke to the serpent, that is, to Satan, to the devil, the great enemy of God and the enemy of our souls. And when God spoke directly to them in the garden, he spoke directly to the serpent first. And he said these words in Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse captures the story behind the story of Exodus. It is a story of a great cosmic and earthly conflict, a war between the serpent and the woman, but really, ultimately, with God. Enmity, from our verse, means intense strife or conflict and can escalate into war in which one wants to conquer the other. Note the structure of our verse. I want to highlight that here on your screen. It's very important to see the the structure of this because this is the story playing out in history. On one side we have the serpent and on the other side we have the woman. Then we see that this conflict between the two will continue on. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And this will ultimately come to a head, come to a climax when the serpent is crushed by a single conqueror that comes from the woman. So this great conflict occurs throughout all of history. And in the midst of that, God makes a promise that one would come and crush the enemy. He would bruise his head, but really the more striking way to understand that is that he would crush the head of the serpent. It would come at a great cost. It would come at his death as the poisonous serpent would bite his heel. But through that death, comes the death of God's enemies. This is a huge story behind the story. It's shaping and informing what's happening in Exodus. And in the midst of this story behind the story, God makes a promise, an announcement. In fact, it's called the first gospel announcement. God would have one come from the line of the woman, that would crush the serpent. Now, we will see that in amazing word pictures throughout Exodus and throughout all of God's word, and we see it building up to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But as we now dip into the story of the Exodus, we are starting out 
and a story that is filled with incredible suffering, bondage to slavery, horrible circumstances. So now let's consider those as we see those play out in verses 8 through 22. And what we see play out in this story of great suffering and bondage and oppression and affliction is a downward spiral of worsening conditions that spanned over decades upon decades upon decades. Verses 8 through 22 start out with this beginning that was just a little bit ambiguous. There was a king who came who did not know Joseph or that story. There wasn't a favorable uh, position on Joseph and his family, the Israelites. And it ends, it ends with this legalized murder. This is a horrible downward spiral. Let's walk through that. Let's go down that spiral to get a feel and a sense of how awful this is. The need for a deliverer. First, we, as I said in verses 8 and 9, we find the new king did not know Joseph, didn't really have a place of appreciation for Joseph and his family and their involvement in Egypt. And some time passed since Joseph faded from memory and the new king didn't like what he saw. Remember, living how God wants you to live will not be accepted by the world. The Israelites were following God's command to be fruitful and to multiply and the Egyptians did not like the multiplied numbers. And that fear led them to verse 10, the next sort of downward spiral to deal shrewdly with the Israelites, the Hebrews. Essentially, they decided to use cunning to trick the Hebrews into a miserable life that would maybe sort of squelch their multiplying numbers. Fear can certainly lead us to mistreat others. And that spiral continues into verse 11 where we see affliction increase and intensify. They were then afflicted with the heavy burden of building great cities in their own glory. The Egyptians forced the Hebrews to build these incredible edifices and cities and structures, all of them to boast of themselves. Now, this is another one of those moments that we need to keep Genesis in mind. It, its structure and, and the word choices and the phraseology actually calls back to Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, or chapter 10. And in there, we see the same word choices like, come let us. And we see the same thing happening, building great cities to their own glory. Again, this is the thread of Genesis 3.15 continuing on. Conflict between evil and God, between hard hearts and hearts that are soft toward God. It's a conflict that continues. That affliction then turns into this like intensified oppression. The burden to build these cities intensified to the point of severe 
harsh oppression on the entire people group. As Israel kept multiplying, so did Egypt's fear and irrationality and how to deal with it. And that spiral keeps going down. We're not at the bottom yet. We now see that the Egyptians ruthlessly enslaved the Hebrews. It just keeps getting worse. The fear and the dread they had, their self-interest, that started the downward spiral has now escalated into a violent hate. They enslaved the people with a violent hate, the, the ruthlessly oppressing the people with this harsh, hard, overwhelming condition. But that didn't stop the Hebrews from multiplying. And so the downward spiral keeps going. It keeps going. You probably want me to stop, but I can't because we still have more verses of this downward spiral. So now they, the Pharaoh concocted a subversive plan for murder. He demanded that those that we would consider labor and delivery nurses... He demanded and commanded them to murder Hebrew boys that are born. To subvert and to, to manage and to ultimately wipe out an entire people group. Now, we can see in this passage, they don't. Those Hebrew midwives don't follow the orders Orders that were evil, directly contra to the character of God, His ways, His works, His word. It, it was evil through and through. They didn't follow through on those. And they told the Pharaoh that the Hebrew women were vigorous in childbearing. And that by the time they got there, the babies were born and they were gone. A lot of ink has been spilled on the ethics here. These women were commanded to murder. They chose not to break God's commands. And I would say, whether they lied or not is really not the point. My thought would be they probably spread the word to the Hebrew women. Y'all, when it's time to push, you better push with everything you got, and we will take the very long road to your room. The lightness of that aside. This is evil. And the people of God were getting crushed under it. And yet it still goes down even further. Verse 22. Pharaoh realizing that his plan, his subversive plan, was thwarted, made it a national law open to all the people of Egypt to throw Hebrew baby boys into the Nile. I don't think we can feel or grasp the horror of such a thing. Pharaoh brings out into the wide open the violent hate, the enmity between the serpent and the woman, the offspring of the serpent. 
and the offspring of the woman. Brings it out into the open, giving a national edict to murder Hebrew boys. Now, all of this, real, overwhelming, just horrific. And yet it points to something even more overwhelming and even more horrific, and that is the nature of our sin. The nature of our sin has a very similar aim. There's a very similar downward spiral leading ultimately to your death, physical and spiritual death. Sin is oppressive. Its chains are are too strong. It is bondage for the soul. The situation of sin is even more overwhelming on us than the situation of the Hebrews in the slavery and the bondage they were in in Egypt. Romans 6 even says that the ultimate aim of sin is your death. And you, like Israel, cannot overcome that. You cannot break free from that. You, like Israel, need delivered. And you need delivered from one who is stronger than the one holding you in bondage and chains and slavery. And our story is a story continued from the beginning of Genesis. It's a story of suffering, but it is a story of deliverance. When you end Exodus chapter 1, you're sitting there, don't, don't move too quickly into Exodus chapter 2 and try to suspend the fact that you know the rest of the story in some measure. You know that, that they got to get rescued somehow, and whether it's with Charlton Heston or not, you know that, that Moses is going to lead the people out. You've probably got that story somewhere in your head and in your heart. You probably remember it in some fashion with flannel graphs or whatever. But suspend that for a moment and just feel the weight and the burden, the oppression, the affliction, the the condition at the end of chapter 1. And the question that would emerge is, what will God do? What will God do? This situation is so overwhelming and severe, it's going to take God to overcome it. Well, that tension that you are feeling is right. Because there is a lot hanging in the balance right now. Genesis 3.15 is hanging in the balance. Will, Will God do something? Will He intervene? Or will the serpent win? The opening chapter of Exodus is to cause those questions to wrestle up in our hearts. Cause us to look to God. Exodus, which literally just the word itself means to be brought up or brought out, is already hinting and showing us that there is God is going to do something. So that question, what will God do? Thankfully, we have the full scope of God's word. So that question can now change from what will God do into what God has done. 
What has God done? Well, he has brought about a radical and overwhelming rescue and deliverance to the people of God in Exodus and to the people of God in all of history. This, the themes and, and the stories of Exodus will find their ultimate fulfillment in the greater one who would come. The Bible itself isn't just a collect, random collection of stories, some interesting, some odd, some filled with lots of lists of things that you don't know what they are or names that you don't know how to say. It's more than that. It's actually quite unified. The Bible is the progressive revealing of God's redemptive purpose for everything, for history, for mankind. The Bible is progressively revealing how God will bring about the ultimate rescue. It's telling one big, awesome story. And along the way, the stories of the Bible give us pictures and glimpses of that one great, grand, glorious story. We know that Israel experiences deliverance and rescue. It's going to be great as we go through it. We also know that that rescue they experienced isn't the ultimate deliverance and rescue. More peril and sadness come in the pages of Old Testament. The story's themes, however, the picture of deliverance, however, are pointing us forward in our Bible. So yes, we read Exodus looking back and knowing Genesis and we read Exodus, looking forward, knowing the full scope of God's Word. And one of the things that's overwhelmingly awesome to see is how the Exodus is picked up in the New Testament. The cool, one of the coolest places is in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is a, an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, written to a primarily Jewish or you know, Israelite background people. So the original readers and, and hearers of the Gospel of Matthew would have known the story of Exodus inside out. Well, Matthew structures his Gospel account to follow the themes and structure of Exodus. It's quite amazing. The first seven chapters of Matthew are following right along the story of Exodus. Consider these. Exodus and Matthew both begin with genealogies. Exodus and Matthew both tell the story of the birth of a deliverer. Exodus and Matthew both see God's people being oppressed by foreign leaders. Exodus and Matthew both see male children being killed. Exodus and Matthew both have very defining water moments with the Red Sea and the baptism of Jesus. Exodus and Matthew both have wilderness temptations. And Exodus and Matthew both have defining sermons on mountains. What is Matthew doing? What is he holding up? And holding out to a primarily Jewish 
background audience who would have known the Exodus story. What is he wanting them to see? He's wanting them to see that Jesus is the greater deliverer. He's the ultimate deliverer from the most ultimate oppression, and that is our sin. He's holding up and holding out that Jesus is greater than Moses. And that's not a dig at Moses. That's just how amazing Jesus is. It means that when we see that structure, we see that theme picked up through the pages of Scripture and then in full display in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means for us that the nature of sin is far more oppressive than Egypt was to Israel. But also, Jesus' deliverance and rescuing work is far superior to that of Moses. As we go through Exodus, and as we wrestle and think about these themes, I hope your hearts are stirred ultimately to Jesus. Because Jesus is the hero of this one big story. Jesus is the deliverer come to rescue us from the oppression of our sin. Jesus is the crusher of the serpent. Jesus is the defeater of death. And Jesus is the overcomer of our sin. We feel the anguish as we feel the affliction, as we feel the weight and the burden of our sin, and as we cry out, God, what will you do? We have good news. Here is what God has done. His name is Jesus, and He overcomes your sin. He is your deliverer. My hope for our time in Exodus isn't to be wowed by Bible stories, but to be wowed by the story of the Bible. May God do that work in our hearts, and may we find great rescue and hope in the God who delivers. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how unified and tied up it is in this one great, glorious story, your redemptive purpose in all of history. And as we dig into Exodus, God, I pray that we would dig in well, our hearts would be eager for it, and would they soar with wonder and worship in you, for you, as we see you as our great deliverer. So God, do that work, we pray. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please continue on in your morning together, your time together, uh, singing and reflecting, closing out your, your time with a benediction. Also, I would just want to encourage you to check out our webpage, our homepage, and just see that we posted a, a recent update on Friday concerning uh, some, some of the plans that are starting to form and take shape of what reopening Trinity might look like. So again, I want to encourage you to go to the website and check that out. Reach out to us, to me, to any of the elders, trustees, or staff, or whomever, and we'll do our very best to answer any questions that you may have.
Have a great rest of the day, Trinity family, and be well, be safe. Blessings.